Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. For some, adventure is just a weekend thing, but for others, it's not only a passion, but their livelihood. Sarah Sterling is an adventure journalist, trail runner, cold water swimmer, and she's recently just cycled a very long way across Patagonia. Sarah Sterling is on Why in the World. Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a, a beautiful little place here that you've got. We're looking, like you can see out the window, we're just sitting at Sarah's table and you can see the the snow on the peaks yeah. in uh, Snowdonia National Park. Yeah, you can see Snowdon from the front steps and um, uh, Morelio out of the back steps. And it's a little old miner's cottage that we live in, in Clamberis. What brought you here then? What brought you to Clamberis? I was living in Chamonix and I lived there for four years and um, I began thinking that I wanted to live somewhere else. Chamonix is an amazing place, there are um, lots of people who are super psyched for their sport out there, people who are massively into trail running or climbing or skiing and I was a super keen trail runner but I think after a few years there, you begin to think that you need something else. Mm. Perhaps, well, for me, not for everybody. I think I wanted to feel more grounded and more down to earth. Mm. So I'd begun looking for somewhere where I could find um, mountains and sea, which are my two favourite things. <laughs> because before I was in Chamonix, I was by the sea in Pembrokeshire, so I missed the sea. So I thought, where can you have both? Norway or New Zealand or and I never even thought of Wales and then I met my husband at a trade show in Germany (laughs) he makes climbing equipment and I write about the outdoors and um, I was walking around the trade show with a friend who's a guy and for some reason we were we were talking about my ideal man and I was trying to describe it. <laughs> so I was saying, oh, I quite like tall, but I've been out with short guys, and I quite like dark, but I've been out with blondes, so I don't really know. And then we uh, interviewed Rob for about 10 minutes, and we left the stand, and I said, there you go, I'll just go out <laughs> with that guy. And he said, how do you know? I said, I don't know. I think I would. That's brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant. What a story. So I came to Wales to interview Rob <laughs> about harnesses. The rest is history. And the rest is history. It must have been quite different coming from Chamonix where, you know, it is all quite of a rat race. There's a lot going on in Chamonix to yes. come into Llanberis in North Wales where even though we're in one of the most beautiful places in my opinion on planet Earth, it's yeah. really quiet a lot of the time. Yeah. It's true. It's very quiet, but there's a lot of links between Chamonix and Clamberis. A lot of mountain guides really like it here, and some divide their time between here and Chamonix. Because I think um, the beauty of North Wales, apart from the fact that there is mountains and sea, and that would never have occurred to me unless I'd come here and met Rob and gone running here, and, you know, been on the peaks and seen the sea and thought, wow, that's quite special... I think um, everything's on a kind of smaller scale here, which makes it a lot more 
accessible mm. so you can you know you can go climbing in the morning you can go cragging on the small crags that are here you know in Chamonix they're so much bigger big motor pitches and then you can um, go swimming in the sea in the afternoon or you can go mountain biking and then you can go for a picnic on a beach so there's something really beautiful about the kind of mini scale of everything mm. here and the fact like you said it is just all incredibly accessible yeah how did you get to this point in terms of your life being focused around adventure and the outdoors because obviously it is your life now it's your livelihood yeah what led you to this sort of adventurous life if you will okay how far back do you want me to go we'll go as far back as you need to (laughs) when I was little I was always reading um and my mum would have to go into school and get extra books for me in the holidays I was always writing I used to write stories and illustrate them when I was little (laughs) And not many of them survive because I think I've always been quite perfectionist. So as I got older, I would throw away the ones I did when I was younger. So only two survive, which I gave as presents to to other people, and then they gave them back to me. And my dad was a graphic designer for magazines, so I'd always seen that world. So I think from quite young, I um, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew mm. I wanted to write for magazines quite specifically. So at school, I didn't listen in geography and I didn't listen in math. So I was a bit arrogant, like, I don't need those subjects because I'm going to be a writer. Pythagoras' <laughs> theorem? No, don't worry. Which I regret now because I can't do math. <laughs> but I was always quite specific. So I went to uni and I studied English literature and language. And then when I left, I wrote to all the magazines that I liked and asked if I could do some work experience. So I did work experience at Trail, and I did work experience with some local magazines, and that led to building a bit of a portfolio, I guess. The local magazine company offered me a part-time job, so I would write about outdoor stuff for their range of magazines across um, Lincolnshire and Leicestershire, which is where I grew up, and then on the side, um, to make ends meet, I taught at a climbing centre and I taught at a ski centre and then at one point I had to make a decision between the two because it was feeling Mm. like it was pulling me in two directions, teaching and writing. The outdoor centres were saying, you're going to go full time and I was saying, I don't know (laughs) and in the end I quit the teaching and focused on the writing and I think at that point knowing that I had to make enough money really forced me to you know get on with it properly make enough money so that was quite a turning point and I would be shut away in my room then working away tippy tapping tippy tapping working away and then yeah it took off from there really but why the outdoors why is that something that you wanted to focus on um so when I was younger I wasn't particularly sporty and my dad would tell those typical stories of trying to get me to go for a walk (laughs) that dads like to tell and then I found horse riding and I had a pony and I would ride all the time and compete at weekends and something special that I did with my mum and then when I got to 16 I got to that stage where you you know you want to be with your friends and that kind of stage where people tend to give up hobbies and so I gave it up and then after a couple of years I realised that 
something was missing from my life, I think. I realised, I think, that I needed a sport. Mm. Sport is really good for your mental health. I wasn't depressed, but I was... I wasn't feeling inspired and motivated like I used to do when I was outside horse riding all the time. I think as a human, you just need the outdoors, don't you? Yeah. And it's difficult sometimes to explain that to somebody that maybe doesn't go outdoors or has never experienced the outdoors. That's a good point. Like, if we strip it all back. Yeah. When we were thousands, thousands of years ago, we lived outdoors. Yeah, that's very true. So maybe we just need the outdoors. I think you're right, and I think maybe a lot of people don't realise that they need it. So that was just before university. I was 18, so I decided to take a gap year, and um, I worked in a local pub in the evenings. I was the barmaid, and they all used to call me Bernard. They thought it was very funny because I was a tiny little blonde thing, so they had this nickname for me. And I learned how to play pool. Um, But by the day, I would try out all sorts of different sports to try and find the one that I needed. So I tried tennis, and I was terrible. I couldn't hit the ball, and I tried windsurfing, and I got hit in the head by the boom, and I couldn't do it. Climbing and skiing were the two that grabbed me in that year, just skiing on a dry slope to start with, which is why I went on to teach those two, because I spent so much time at the climbing wall and the ski slope that they said, Perhaps we should give you a job. And then when I was at uni, in halls, eating the typical stodgy sort of food (laughs) that you get, a friend said, oh my gosh, we've got to to go for a run around the block after that, because I just can't face myself. (laughs) So we ran around the block, and that's the first time I'd run since school. And it immediately totally grabbed me. And then I would just run all the time. Mm -hmm. And friends said, and I said, oh, I just, I just don't get tired running. And friends would say, well, you've got to, you've got to run farther, or you've got to run faster if it's not enough. So I started running further. Running is one of those things that becomes, and I've spoke about this before, but it's like meditative, isn't it? Very. In a in a yeah. real weird way, because people are like, doesn't it hurt when you run? And you're like, well, yeah, sometimes, sometimes yeah. it hurts. And people are like, oh. Why do you do it if it hurts? It's just, I don't know. For me, it's like a reset button. Yeah, that's a good phrase for it. It's the best blast of fitness that you can get in the shortest time. And it's very simple, so you you just need shoes. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing I like. I'm not good with technical things, like having to put together a windsurf board or a bike. It's just totally simple. You can do it anywhere. It's total freedom, isn't it? You just take your shoes wherever you go and then you can get some me time. One thing about running now, and I understand it because you want to be competitive, especially if you're racing, but sometimes it becomes too technical, I think. Sometimes I think people need to like just get rid of everything, wear a pair of trainers and just go out rather than looking at their watch every two seconds and wondering what minute mile pace you're on. I think there's a place, obviously there's a place for that, like racing is a massive thing, but it is nice just to go out in the mountains and explore too, isn't it? I've never liked technology in the mountains, so I've bought technical watches before and I've literally never used them, (laughs) so... It's sat in the drawer. It's sat in the drawer and I think 
for me, running is something that sucked me in quite slowly. So if I found it hard, I stopped. So I got fitter quite gradually Mm. and by a process of just going so often and wanting to know what was higher up. I think particularly moving to Chamonix. When I was in Pembrokeshire, I ran the coast path in stages and I really like exploring like that, you know, being able to see the whole coastline. Mm. So gradually I knew every bit of it and I had favourite bits and I still do. And then when I moved to Chamonix, that same exploring, but everything's so much bigger. So my running just became further and further because I wanted to know what was higher and what was further away. When I used to race, I don't race anymore. Everyone else would be like training and um, looking at the plan of the race, you know, the height gain. And I wouldn't look at anything before I ran because I didn't want to know because I much prefer not knowing and running. And if there's a hill, then I just run up it. I don't want to know that after that hill, there's, there's 10 more. I'd rather not know. So I would just run really hard, you know, pace myself, but run hard. And then every now and then ask someone, you know, how far, <laughs> how far have we got left to go? <laughs> it's nice sometimes to think, oh, this must be the last hill as well, because you're just convincing yourself that, yeah, yeah there's going to be no more hills. So get over this one, right? it's going to be absolutely fine after this. Yeah, I think it's just staying in the present with it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is there any personal highlights, any things that you've done in running, any races that you've done or any routes that you've been on that are, that are like personal highlights to you or that stick out? I didn't race for a long time and I thought that I wouldn't like it. I thought there would be too many people and it would spoil it. So I didn't do it. And then one day a friend convinced me to enter a race and it was a half marathon in um, Exmoor, a trail one. And I arrived and I thought, just as I thought, there's too many people. I'm just going to start at the back and I'm not very fast anyway. And then as soon as the... um, whistle or whatever it was blue and the race started it was just like that I was just thought I've got to be in the front and I'm at the back instantly um so I just set off tried to overtake as many people as I could and you know what it's like on the trail it's hard to get round people and I had to get round everyone because I'd started at the back <laughs> I surprised myself by really enjoying it and I think I came fourth in that one And then after that, I would occasionally enter races and Mm. absolutely love it. You know, just smaller races like the Endurance Life Series. And I would typically do quite well in them, Mm. but without, I didn't really like training. And then when I moved to Chamonix, I um, entered my first ultra. Some friends were doing it and it was a week away. And it was 72K, I think. And I entered it and I didn't know anything about how to run an ultra. So I stayed with some friends initially and they were doing it all properly and trying to stay below their, you know, in the right heart rate zone. So basically walking for the first few hours. And then they said, why don't you just go? So then I ran really hard for about four hours and loved it. And then my knees stopped working. They just suddenly stopped working. You're not going any further. So I had to walk. So I learned all sorts of things on this ultra. I think I came 10th in that one, maybe. But I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. And then I entered the CCC and um, got injured training for that. So that was a shame. Yeah. Talk me through that injury then. 
So by doing that race, which was in the Jura, the Ultra, I'd got the points for the CC, enough points to enter the CCC, which is the sort of half UTMB. And then I began trying to train, so I tried to push myself a bit harder, basically. And then one day something just went in my Achilles, and um, I couldn't run anymore. And I found that really hard for months, really hard trying to fix it and not being able to. And so since then, it's been a, a recurring injury for me. And I've still raced. <laughs> but usually I suffer a bit afterwards and it just seems to come back. And I know other people who have the same thing. It's kind of hard to accept that like, oh, yeah. why has this happened to me? Why have I got this injury? Yeah. It's just annoying. It is quite annoying. And it did get better for a while. Um, I raced again in Italy. I think it was a 30k in Colmaia. And I did well in that. I think I came fifth. And then um, then I moved here and it went again. I think I went out running with Rob, my husband, now. Tried to run too hard. Maybe I was trying to show off. <laughs> and it went and it's been... It's been difficult since then. But you have kind of found in recent times another love, which is a project that you're like working on at the moment, which yeah. I really love. And one of the reasons like I first came across you really, um, just explain the kind of Snowdonia Lakes project that you're trying to do and exactly what it is. I'm trying to swim in a hundred different um, lakes, rivers, waterfalls and sea coves in Snowdonia and sort of out towards Anglesey and the Clin. What is it with open water swimming? <laughs> what is it? So basically when I got injured, I started researching natural highs because I was interested in how your mood suffers if you don't do your sport, especially if you've been very fit. If someone gets injured and they're very fit, you know they're going to be grumpy. Aggie, yeah. <laughs> basically. Yeah. So being a nosy journalist, I started reading up on it and I found it really fascinating to know that um, man-made drugs work by basically mimicking or, mimicking or um, enhancing drugs that your brain already produces. So I didn't know that. You know, the brain produces its own cannabis, which is called anandamide, and it produces its own antidepressant, PEA, and its own speed, and endorphins is... Um, means morphine in the body so that really fascinated me yeah that's fascinating and then I um, watched a program called The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs and um, this doctor you know it's the standard kind of going walking obviously it's going to be good for your health and doing martial arts is good for your back but then there was um, this moment in the program where he treats this lady who suffers from depression with cold water swimming and she's you know she's moody and she's depressed and she's tearful and she doesn't think she can do anything in life and then she gets in the water and then she just gets out a different person just you know euphoric mm. so I thought that's really interesting I emailed a um, sports scientist in Colorado and said how does this work is it different with different sports you know if you cycle or if you run or if you swim do you get different natural highs and he said as far as he knew, it was all related to intensity. So the more intense your workout, the more natural highs you get. 
So then I interviewed a lot of diff- people who did different sports. And the picture that I began to get was that intensity didn't necessarily mean further or faster. It could be added by um, seeing something beautiful, mm. like a sunset That's while you're running, or um, camaraderie, running with other, you know, cycling with a group of other people and you become a pack. That seems something in road cycling. You're a pack because yeah. you're so focused on where you are in that pack that you become kind of one. Mm. So it's yeah. not the same on your own. Become super well oiled as well. If you're like road cycling with four or five people, and then it's yeah. like you know it's like your turn to take the lead. Yeah. And you're together again. And then it's exactly it's kind of becomes a machine almost. It's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And then in cold water swimming, as I understand it, the cold adds this extra intensity because um, you lose heat a lot more quickly in water than you do on land and your skin has a lot more cold receptors than warm ones so it's very intense and then when you get out you get this flood of natural highs basically so I tried it and I went to a lake and I jumped in and I thought oh my gosh this is awful and I scrabbled (laughs) to get out and I thought what was that and then I felt this you know this kind of glow afterwards and then I interviewed a um a lady locally called Vivian Rickman, who's well known in wild swimming. She calls that the afterglow, and she said, the more you swim, the less that you feel that. And then you have to start swimming further or swimming in colder water to get the same high. So I've been thinking about this lately because I've been writing about swimming in winter, and that's part of the appeal, I think, is that if you've been swimming for a while, you're acclimatised. So people say, oh, wow, you get in cold water. It's like running. People say, oh, you're so good for doing all that running. But to you, it feels normal. That normalisation of just anything is weird, isn't it? It's something I've talked to about with some of my friends that I've done long races with before. And you start talking about mileage like it's like you're not impressed by doing another 50-mile race or whatever. You're just kind of... It's just like you see it as a norm, which is strange. And it'd be the same with obviously cold water swimming. You You kind of see just going out there and doing it as... Normal. as the norm yeah and to the vast majority of people in the public they're like that ain't normal <laughs> that's true isn't it that's not what are you talking about <laughs> in, the, in the winter then when you're carrying on this project it's gonna get cold here it's gonna get really cold here yeah are you planning on going out and smashing ice and jumping yeah, I think in so. and... last year i swam so last year my aim was to get to 50 lakes and rivers by um, December the 4th, I think it was, because that's when we were going away for three months. So I had quite a smash at the end there, dashing about in all these lakes and rivers instead of packing, <laughs> um, getting obsessed. And there was a couple of times I had to break some ice to get into lakes. Is it not scary? That's what people always say about open water swimming. Like in a pool, you know what's under you. It's just a weird tiled floor. But out there, you've got no clue. I think to start with, it's scary. It's like anything, isn't it? You get used to it. So I think in a lake, there's only so many things that can be underneath you. Maybe fish. Yeah. Weeds. On my own, I would be more scared. On my own, I probably wouldn't swim as far as I would if someone else was with me. Is there anything you think that you'd like to do in swimming 
is it is it something that it has that adventure brain started churning you're thinking you know what after this I'd like to do something big I definitely would and I haven't put my finger on what it should be yet to be honest at the moment I'm just enjoying swimming people always ask how far do you swim and it's like asking how far how far do you run you know it really varies depending on how cold it is Mm. or if you're alone or how you feel I don't always swim super far and I'm not a technically very good swimmer I'm I've always been confident in the water Um, and I can front crawl but I prefer breaststroke Mm. so running along swimming a long way learning how to do that to start with would be challenge a challenge for me do you draw comparisons between swimming and running do you get the same out of both or is it different it's definitely comparable and I think for me now that I can't run as far or as hard as I used to I can't at the moment you know maybe I can combining shorter runs with swims has been really good because I'm still exploring which is my favorite thing I'm trying to find these lakes so it might be a shorter run but it's got a cool aim to find something you know to get off the beaten track that's the difference between running and swimming actually is that you know when you're trail running you're on a trail and you're quite focused on getting to the top or getting further and you don't see well I didn't used to see a lot of things that were going on appreciate a lot of time yeah you're kind of in your own bubble a little bit whereas with swimming you know if you're trying to find a lake or the best bit in a river to get in then you're moving a lot more slowly Mm. and you're off the beaten track so you've got to you know you've got to be able to map read and you've you're probably going to be in a bog and you're you're trying to find something so you're a lot slower and you notice a lot more must be peaceful it's peaceful yeah it's definitely peaceful so there are parallels definitely but also some quite big differences pardon the pun but how deep are you into those 100 lakes (laughs) rivers had that in my head for ages and I'm gonna have to say it (laughs) I think I'm at number 80 now okay so I've got 20 more to do are you saving one for the end I should shouldn't I I don't think so maybe I should do you think there'll be a little celebration I hope so yeah I don't know if I'll get them done before I'd like to get them done before Christmas and it's my birthday this week and myself and another crazy swimmer are trying to think of a good challenge that we can do to celebrate so it might enjoy it might involve cramming in a few lakes yeah you can do you could do 20 in 24 hours you, you absolutely could but in winter it'd be cold it would be really cold last night we arrived at this um quarry lake and um i don't know when we realized it was about to go wrong but probably when we got out of the car and it was so windy and it was about four o'clock because we'd had to wait until after she'd picked her little boy up from school. And as we were hiking up, it was getting windier and windier. And then we got to this um, quarry lake, and it was beginning to get dark. And I thought my bag would be fine, so I concentrated on her, her kind of bucket that she had her swim stuff in. And I put it under a rock, and I put a rock in it. And then when I turned around, um, my GoPro had fallen out of my bag into the lake. <sighs> So I started quickly trying to get it changed and it began to drift because it was windy. So I was quickly getting changed 
And then um, I took off my trousers and my pants and they both flew into the lake. (laughs) And at that point, at this point, the GoPro was about halfway across the lake. And I thought, I'm just going to have to get my trousers because I can't have them drifting away and sinking. So I was naked from the waist down with this down jacket on and I just got in the lake in what I was wearing and grabbed them out. And as I did that, my bag flew in. So I was absolutely soaked. All my stuff was soaked. And then her little boy had been on the bank. So by now my GoPro was at the far side, the far side. And I said to Laura, you don't have to come because it's getting dark and it's a bit mad, but I'm going to see if I can find it. So we set off and she said, "Um, what do you think those boys mark over there? And I said, oh, it's probably, you know, for diving or something. And she said, what do you think's under there? I don't know. She said, maybe it's a drain and it sucked your GoPro in and it's going to suck us in. And I said, I hope not. (laughs) So luckily we found this GoPro at the far side and swam back. And her her little boy had been sat taking photos and he said, "Um, I accidentally called someone, Mum, and then I hung up. And he said, her name was Sauce. And she said, oh, no, (laughs) you didn't ring the emergency services, did you? So then she got a phone call to check that we were all right. And we said, I think we're all right. I think we're okay. (laughs) It wasn't a drain. It's all fine. It's all good. No. I want to ask quickly about about your writing and, you know, what you do on a day to day basis and your job. When you finish a piece you put that last full stop at the end of an article and you read through it and you yeah. check it. Do you feel a sense of pride when you do that? Like, I've created this from first word to last word. There's definitely a moment when you're writing, and I don't know how other people do it, but I tend to start by just writing and thinking, I will probably delete the first two paragraphs, so I'm just going to go for it. And I write quite fast, so ding, 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 ding. And then I kind of edit it to make sense. And I research, I love researching, and I throw all that in and I move it all around and cut it down. And there's definitely a moment where the ending becomes obvious. Maybe some people are more structured and they plan it, but I tend to just move stuff around until it makes sense. And then at one point, the paragraph that makes sense as the ending will kind of pop out. And then I think, oh, and it does feel very satisfying to have created something definitely what have you gained from the outdoors how has it affected your life that's a good question I think it's everything really both of our lives you know my husband designs climbing equipment and I write about the outdoors and if you look around our house everything is outdoorsy outdoorsy there's walking boots on the shoe rack next to trainers and the skis over there and bikes on the wall maps everywhere bikes in the kitchen I think it's everything you know you get home and you think how am I gonna get outside when am I gonna get outside today most people get back and they think oh god I can't wait to sit on the sofa and do nothing you (laughs) get back and think oh I can't wait to get back outside now (laughs) not every day (laughs) and probably less as I get older but definitely when I was younger We'll finish off with this. Is there anywhere in the world, any place you'd like to go that you haven't been yet? Anywhere you want to explore? If you could pick one place and be there right now, be transported. One place that's where would you really send yourself to? Hard. Yeah, because you've got running, you've got swimming, you've got... One place. Alaska, maybe? Going to South America last winter was a sort of 
once in a lifetime, what shall we do? So we did that. That had been something I'd wanted to do for ages. Go to Patagonia. Just seeing the vast magnitude of Patagonia must have been... It's huge. It's hard to put it into scale, especially cycling. And we cycled down the westernmost road, kind of tucked behind the Andes for a thousand kilometres. And it's just enormous. Everything is so big. That was my one place that I wanted to go. Mm, You've done it. I've done it now. You've been there. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well quit. What sort of drew you to that? Why did you want to go there in the first place? And why did you choose bikes? Patagonia, because I think as Chatwin wrote, it's, you know, it's a symbol of human restlessness because it's the furthest place from our place of origins that we walk to. It's just so romantic, isn't it? And there's peaks and there's waterfalls. You know, there's everything that I like on a, a, a massive scale. And bikes, I think, because my husband's favourite thing is climbing and my favourite thing is running and we meet on kind of biking and swimming. We both like those. And so and we both like to be moving all the time. So going on a journey with panniers, and he has to make our panniers every time, <laughs> is something that we really like doing together. Yeah. And it makes quite a good team activity. How long were you out there for? A month. A thousand kilometres in a month. It must have been such a wonderful thing to experience with someone else as well. Take someone else with you, share those memories on that journey. I don't think I could have done it with anybody else, to be honest. It was, you know, wild camping and gravel roads, so quite slow progress. Anything specifically that sticks out to you? Any... Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Because, like, just saying, like, (laughs) anything that sticks out at you, it's a month, obviously, there's going to be loads of memories, but are there any memories that you're like, that is a story that I will continue to tell forever? Yeah, I think there's two. I think it's like, you know, I love stories. You can have two. (laughs) The first thing was um, the rainforest, just the scale of the rainforest and comparing that to home where our rainforest was you know, large-scale clearance started here before written history, and we brought sheep in before written history to keep it all cleared of rainforest. So to go somewhere where that's all still there was amazing. Just seeing this landscape that's evolved for dinosaurs that's still there, you know, it's enormous. (laughs) So Rob would often ask, you know, we didn't have much downtime. You're cycling or you're cooking or you're asleep. But if I had any spare time, he'd say, what are you doing? And I'd say, reading about dinosaurs. He's always reading about dinosaurs and the enormous plants that had evolved for dinosaurs to eat. The second thing was um, pressure slowly mounted as, you know, we started the trip thinking, we have got a month. Let's chill out. You know, we're not in a hurry. And then about halfway, we took two days off to do a hike in the mountains and it was beautiful. But it was actually a four-day hike and we crammed it into two days. And at the end of it, I was tired. My husband doesn't really get tired. But I was tired. And then we realised that we were in a hurry to get to the end now. And it was going to get wilder and it was going to get harder. That night I had a little bit of a cry. Just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to camp by this river forever. And I'm going to learn how to fish. And in the morning he said, so uh, he just, at this point, when I was just, you know, upset, he's, he's very calm. He just put me in the tent and I was saying, I'm not tired, I'm not tired. And then I just <sighs> fell asleep. And then in the morning he said, so you're going to stay here and uh, make that fishing rod, are you? And I said, oh, no, probably not. <laughs> and I got back on my bike. But as we cycled, it was, you know, building stress to get to the end. 
and um, there's a big lake at the end of this road and uh, we plan to get a ferry across it. It's America's steepest lake, it's like 800 metres deep or something. And we heard that this ferry wasn't running because the weather was really bad. And if we missed the ferry, we would have to turn around and cycle half of the way back because oh. that was the nearest airport. So as we biked and it was getting harder and harder, we were thinking, oh, I really don't want to have to turn around and cycle back. So we booked flights out from both airports, the halfway one and the one that was across the lake and further south. So it was getting stressful as we approached there and it was Christmas, coming up to Christmas. We had to make a decision and then we heard that the ferry had started running again. But we didn't know if we would get on it or if it would stop again, but we thought, right, we'll keep going. And so we were in a hurry and it was raining, we were in the rainforest and all our stuff was soaked. And then there was this moment in the rainforest, like in the wildest bit of the road, where we looked up and saw all these condors in the sky. They're enormous birds. And the sun came out and we just thought, this is amazing that we're in this place and we shouldn't be racing. It's beautiful. So we just stopped and set up camp by the river and lit a fire and that was Christmas Eve. And we had a bottle of wine in the pannier and it was just an, an amazing moment, I think, where we thought, it actually doesn't matter. If you were going to say something to somebody that maybe wasn't outdoorsy, if yeah. you use that as a term, if they don't really go outside and experience the mountains or they've never been for a run or just experienced the great outdoors, yeah. what would you say to them? Oh my goodness, you've got to get outside. It's hard, isn't it? How do you get that across to someone? I don't know, that makes me feel quite sad to think that people might not have experienced that. I think you should rewind this podcast yeah. five minutes <laughs> and listen to that Patagonia story again. <laughs> That'll make you get outside. Yeah, hopefully. hopefully. And if people want to read about that, if people want to find out more about you, Sarah, how do, how do they do that? Where do they go? Um, I've got a website, sarahsterling.com and then I'm on Instagram at sarah underscore sterling next time I come back over yeah. take me for a swim yeah I will let's do that I didn't think of offering that do you want to go for a swim now? I can't go for a swim oh, now oh yeah gotta get back oh yeah <laughs> next time I promise Still haven't taken up Sarah on the invitation of that swim. The speedos are ready, Sarah. The speedos are ready. I'll 100% cash that invitation in soon. What a lovely person. And big thanks to Sarah for coming on the podcast and having that conversation. As always, if you get five minutes, please do make sure you are subscribed, rate and review the show as well. And in two weeks, you will have another brand new episode.